Higging, and welcome to another episode of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks again for being a part of this journey. Hope everyone is doing great post-Labor Day. We're almost into fall time. It's I can't believe the summer's already gone. Uh, pretty crazy. But got a great guest in store for you all today. Excited to jump into this episode. But let me do a quick background just so you guys kind of level set um, as we go in. My guest today, gentleman by the name of Nir Ayal, and his name is spelled N-I-R. E-Y-A-L. Check out his website, nearandfar.com. Near being spelled with his first name, N-I-R. But uh, he's a blogger. He's a two-time author. Um, His prior book, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, as well as his new book, Just Dropped, Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. It's out now. Um, he's a two-time tech founder, so he's done some great things. He shares a lot of this in the episode, so excited to get into it with you all. But um, I definitely think there'll be some good nuggets that each and every one of you will be able to kind of take through um, with this episode and you know be able to jot down, maybe take along uh, for your own particular journey. So let's jump right into it. Without further ado, my chat today with Nir Ayal. Let's get it started. Nir, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this is going to be a lot of fun. I was excited. Um, I know one of the uh, former guests that I've had on, Brian uh, Wish, had connected us, and so glad he did so because I, I, you know, I've heard about you in the past. So it's one of those things. I'm like, why do I know his name? And then after looking at some of the stuff, I'm like, okay, yeah, that that makes sense with some of the oh, yeah, that dude. <laughs> that dude. Um, and I, you know what I think? I think I came across your blog a little while back. That's actually what it was. Um, But anyway, so I want to get in. I want to learn a little bit about, obviously, some of the things you've been doing along the way. I definitely want to talk about the the book and and some of the things you're doing now. But as I always tend to do with a lot of guests, I love to understand kind of your unique journey, how you got to this point, because it's fascinating to me just how many different, you know, twists and turns most uh, people's lives take. And and, and they don't start out and they don't end the way they start out, I guess. Yeah. With you, I want to take a step back because, again, doing some research here, and you can fact check me on some of this stuff. I'm always curious, and maybe we'll start at this point. Like back when you were like in high school and maybe getting into college, I know you went to Emory. What was when when someone asked you like, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" What was that answer for you back then? Do you remember? Oh, that's easy. I always wanted to be a fighter pilot. That was my dream, and then I got glasses. <laughs> <laughs> and I never became a fighter pilot. I did become a private pilot. However, I, I earned my pilot's license. I soloed at 16. Uh, I was just crazy about airplanes. And uh, I, I'm, I was in a military family. And so that was my dream. And at the time, now I, I think it's changed. But I'm, I'm, I'm on the older side. I'm 41. So when I was in high school, if you got glasses, it was, forget it, you're not going to flight school. Well, that was like a deal breaker, I guess. You you, you needed to have pretty good uh, seeing, I guess, to fly one of those whatever, right, right. million I think, dollar planes or whatever. Yeah, exactly. I think now you're allowed to have LASIK or something, which, I, which I've since gotten. But <laughs> but uh, at the time, yeah, you couldn't fly in the military, I think, without uh, 2020. So how did that, that's actually a curious topic because obviously a lot of, you know, I, I guess I, with a lot of kids, you know, maybe it's around sports. Um, of like, hey, I think I'm going to go to college and get the scholarship, and then they don't, or maybe it's to play professionally or whatever. How did how was the self talk there for you? Was that a pretty devastating time of like, oh my god, I can't do this? Or I'm just curious if you adapted pretty well to that. You know, it really it really did serve me, I think, in a lot of ways because um, my motivation to excel at at academic activities um, 
was was really focused around well you know if you want to be a pilot you have to be good at mathematics if you want to be a pilot you have to be in good physical shape and so i, I credit it in a way to, for helping me uh overcome or persevere through a lot of obstacles so actually before this let me back up i was probably the one of the defining uh stages in my life was a stage when i was clinically obese and i was clinically obese up until high school um and uh it was it was tough like as a kid i grew up in central florida and you know pools were everywhere lakes were everywhere and i was always the kid who was so embarrassed by how fluffy he was that i i would never take off my shirt i would always go swimming with a shirt on and you know girls didn't really show much interest in me for a long time and so i remember this like uh phase where food felt like it controlled me and i think that actually that became uh that fascination with how did food control me and how did i overcome that that control by this by the food manufacturers or the you know the, the whatever you want to blame for and now i know what the source of it's actually not the food companies that i blame anymore uh it's that i didn't have the coping strategies to to deal with these cravings and that i was eating not because I was hungry, as anyone who's been overweight probably knows that, you know, we, we don't eat because we're hungry, we eat because we don't like the way we feel. Uh, and so that, 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 you know, understanding that overcoming it, I credit in a way wanting to become a pilot part of what helped me overcome uh, uh, the obesity. And, and I, this was clinical, this wasn't just, you know, chubby, you know, baby fat, this was, I remember going to the doctor with my mom and my doctor showing me like, okay, this is the chart of you know what your the weight distribution for people your age and here's normal, here's overweight and here's you. You're in this red category of obese. Um, so wow, uh, yeah, and you know went to fat camp the whole nine yards, and um, so yeah, in, in in some ways I credit the the dream of wanting to become a pilot as giving me the the push um, to to get in shape. And then when that dream didn't happen. Um, I found some other alternatives, right? So I, I still became a pilot, so I can still fly private planes. Uh, I just couldn't go into the military. So I, I, I found other, other outlets. What about for you? I'm curious for you. What, did you have a, a dream of, of what profession you wanted to be as a kid? You know, I, that's a, that's a good question to turn around. I, you know, I always wanted to play golf professionally um, uh-huh. as like a fun, you know, whatever from an athlete side, but I always wanted to do, I don't know. I don't know if it was, <laughs> This is hilarious. I was from watching Matlock as a kid with my grandfather, but I always wanted to be a lawyer. Yeah. Um, but that never panned out. Um, I couldn't, I don't know. I couldn't go through the schoolwork. I, I, I was never a good student. Hey, um, sounds so. to me like you dodged a bullet, man. All my lower lawyer friends are miserable. Yes. I <laughs> think everybody I, I know I, who, who went to law, like literally everyone I know. Oh, there's one exception. One person who became a public defender who's actually happy. Everybody else who went to law school, they either don't practice law they stop practicing law or they practice law but they're absolutely miserable doing it yeah i think i I think i dodged the bullet there i think i got lucky but uh, it was fun to explore that and just and obviously you know i always i'm always interested when i talk to friends that are you know lawyers attorneys etc um so i always kind of quiz them on stuff but yeah i think i I made a good decision there law school sounds fun I, i i think going to law school would be a blast i think it'd be intellectually very very interesting but actually practicing law (laughs) <laughs> well, it is, you know, and this is actually gets into some of the stuff, I, you know, I think you do and, and, and probably some of the transition you had in your life is I was fortunate, you know, having those experiences kind of going through. But at the end of the day, I look at how I am today and I kind of all this renaissance period I've been in the last several years of really understanding myself. Mm-hmm. I would have been out of my mind. Yeah. I can't sit still for 
five minutes and I'm always doing active something. So I can't imagine sitting and looking at, you know, a 50 page contract and trying to, you know, so anyways, it was, uh, it was, a, it was a good thought. Like I said, I was big, uh, big Matlock fan. My grandfather yeah. loved it. So I'd watch it with him on his lap and stuff, but yeah. Um, oh, it's, it's interesting because there's this question. I, I often hear this question of, you know, what do you wish you could tell your younger self and you know, what mistakes do you most regret or whatever? And it's kind of a silly question in a way, but you think about it because you, you could not, it's like, it's a very circular thought that you couldn't tell your, your younger self to be different because that mistake or change or, you know, closed door that opened up another door made you who you are today. So there, it would be impossible to, to have any kind of perspective today because, you know, the, the, the things that didn't work out are so critical to your experience of who you became. Yeah. And that's why I think it's interesting. Like even, you know, folks that say, oh, I have regrets. I mean, sure, you can categorize it to make it easier in, in terms of a conversation, but those regrets are, to your point, is kind of what leads you down certain paths. And if you didn't go through that, you know, unfortunately, you know, or fortunately, um, or unfortunately, however you look at it, like maybe you wouldn't be in the position you are today. Yeah, so I absolutely. think that gives some opportunity to, uh, you know, to reflect and have perspective, but it doesn't mean you, you have to say, hey, I hated that. Like, sure, I didn't like that moment, but it did help propel me or, or gave me a lesson um, that exactly. I would, would not have gotten. So right, right. speaking of that, this is a good transition because I saw in here, I, I like to go on weird tangents on this podcast. Uh-huh. I saw looking uh, on, on your LinkedIn profile, when you went to Emory, were you were part of an improv comedy troupe? I was. Wow, you really did some research. That's impressive. yeah, because that's cool. That's cool to me. Actually, it's funny. I, you know, I, I list, like I'm a big like interview guy. I love listening to stuff like that. But actually, I randomly was listening to Will Ferrell um, last night. He, he did his commencement speak at USC recently. And anyway, so I was I was actually uh, he was talking about obviously the Groundlings and doing stuff. So when I saw that, I was like, oh, this is really cool. Um, how did you get in that? Like comedy that seems like a a total maybe away from fighting uh, fire fighter pilots or whatever it is it's true that is a a big change um so let's see so uh wow that's this is a good that's a good question so uh part of part of i think what drove me to um explore what it takes oh sorry i should back up in order to explore what it took to become an, a fighter pilot, I knew that one of the things that 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 uh, flight that uh, the military looked for was leadership qualities, and so I uh, wanted to try my hand at leadership. <laughs> and so I remember in in uh, seventh grade, I ran for class office, uh, and uh, uh, I, I won. I was this you know really chubby kid that actually beat the cheerleader <laughs> who ran against me and became class president in middle school for two years. I got reelected. And then in high school, I took a break in ninth grade, and then I kept, I was student council president for 10th grade, 11th grade, and 12th grade in my high school class. And um, that leadership role, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I also liked the public speaking aspect of it, right? Like, you know, talking at pep rallies and, and you know, like giving, giving my annual talk to the class. I actually, I really enjoyed it. Uh, and I, I always knew it was very, very powerful. I wasn't very good at it, but I, I really enjoyed it. And so improv in college, uh, I saw as a way to get more comfortable in front of a crowd. I figured, you know, if I could get in front of a crowd without any idea of what I was going to say or what I was going to do or how I would make them laugh and, uh, you know, just completely go off script with just a skill set that you're taught when you become a part of this this uh, improv troupe, I thought that would be an amazingly cool skill to master. So I, I auditioned and I, I made the group and I was in it for, I think, three years. 
what was the most fun part? Was it just kind of the not knowing, you know, what was going to be said? You had to, you know, kind of do that. Was it just being in that team atmosphere? What, what did you like the most about improv? Because people had suggested that to me or others like, hey, this is a cool thing. If you if you want to get better at public speaking or getting in front of crowds, improv is actually a unique way to do that. But just curious kind of for what your takeaways were from it. Yeah. So one of the principles you learn uh, in improv is what's called yes and. So and the, and the principle is that, you know, if someone gets on stage and says, whoa, the air here is so thin on Mount Everest, but we made it. You want to say yes and something, 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 as opposed to we're not on Mount Everest. We're in a science lab. Well, you just killed the skit, right? And so the idea is yes and, right? Always add yes and to the to the skit to keep it rolling. Don't don't be a hater and and, and uh, uh, you know kill kill the, the the skit. And I think that principle is is great in other aspects of life as well. That that idea of yes and, right? I I use it today when I'm helping companies build products and services, and we're in a a discussion and and we're brainstorming around different features and uh, how we can improve a product experience or a website or an app. And uh, a lot of people in the room will have never gotten the memo about yes and. Somebody will say, hey, I got an idea. What if we do such and such and such? I say, nah, that's a stupid idea, <laughs> right? As opposed to yes and what about something else? So it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a subtle shift that is really, really important in terms of helping people feel comfortable, helping them feel what's called psychological safety. Uh, we, we never want to clobber people over the head when they have uh, ideas and suggestions. We want to always be yes anding. Yeah, that's a that's a good note on that. Um, and, and one of the things, too, I wanted to ask, I guess, maybe part of that, too, of like how, that whole learning and, and trying to evolve, um, like I said, getting outside your comfort zone, whatever. What, so you left Emory. I saw that you had a, a short stint at uh, Boston Consulting, obviously very well known. But then you co-founded a company. I'm curious about that transition, if you can talk about maybe it was very glamorous, maybe it wasn't. I don't know. But what made you want after just a couple of years out of college say, Hey, I'm going to co-found this company. Can you talk about that time in your life and, and some of the things that happened? Sure. Sure. So let's see. So out of school, uh, I didn't really know what I'd do. And, and, you know, uh, I, w I was looking frankly to make some money. <laughs> I needed to get on my feet financially after college. And so, um, uh, one of the best jobs you could get out of school from where I went to school was in consulting or banking and, uh, that's that's what I did. I didn't know a ton about it. I, I was a econ minor, and it seemed like something that I'd be somewhat interested in when it comes to to business. So I went into a, a management consulting firm, um, and uh, it sucked. <laughs> it was awful. <laughs> I had a, a terrible experience uh, for most of my time there. For the be in the beginning, it was wonderful. Actually, when I first got to BCG, um, I had some amazing bosses. Uh, my first set of bosses were really, really great. And I remember like the first case I was on, I was like, oh my God, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. These people are amazing. I want to be just like them. They're so smart. Uh, that, 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 that's what I wanted to do. And I, I remember feeling intense, uh, this intense desire to make them look good. Uh, you know, and I can say their names. Their, their names, Delaney and Terry, they were wonderful. But then the next project team that I got on I had terrible bosses, <laughs> like people who were really good consultants, but awful managers. And I didn't want to make them look good at all. They were jerks. And so my motivation level was, you know, non-existent. I, I, I just stopped caring about it because I, I didn't want to work hard for these people. I, they didn't take 
ideas that well they didn't uh, they didn't ask for my feedback i felt like if i raised a suggestion uh it would get shot down it, it wasn't a psychologically safe place and the hours of course were crazy right we were working consistently 60 70 hour weeks um and, and traveling a ton always away from my family and so after two years of that typically it's a two-year stint I found this opportunity at the time. This was uh, the time when uh, the United States was going into the second Iraq war. Um, and I had an opportunity to go into the solar energy business. And one thing I can credit consulting with is that it, it, it really opened my eyes to the way business works. Like when you're working for Fortune 100 clientele and you're learning the mechanics of these business models from the inside out, that's something that, that school couldn't teach me. Uh, even though I was an econ minor, it's nothing, you know, nothing like actually being on the inside of these companies. You know, I learned about economies of scale, for example, was was one concept that I, I understood as a huge competitive advantage. And uh, so I saw that opportunity when I when I had this opportunity to go into the solar energy business. It was good timing. Uh, I had a good sense that the that that energy would become more expensive when we went and invaded Iraq. Uh, and so uh, I basically, my wife and I, she quit her job as an investment banker and I quit my job as a consultant and we started a solar energy business and we basically professionalized solar installers. Uh, most of them had been left over from the, you know, the Carter years when there were incentives from the Carter administration. At that time, there were no solar incentives. This was before the days of what we, what we then had, which was all kinds of incentives from the government for solar energy. But at the time there were none. And so we basically like professionalized all of these uh, these, these installers into like an umbrella company. And so it's very similar to what Solar City, which eventually was publicly traded and then bought by Tesla, uh, very similar business model to what they did. But of course, when I started the company with my wife, uh, we were pipsqueaks, right? We were teeny tiny. <laughs> I didn't even know what a venture capitalist was. I had no idea of how to raise money and make it big. And we actually got an offer from a private equity firm. And uh, we sold that company because we were you know, we were just so amazed that we could build something and sell it uh, for equity, uh, not even for, you know, hard goods. We didn't have any hard assets. It was purely equity. And uh, so we sold the business. And uh, I also, before we sold the business, actually, I, I got into Stanford Business School. It was the only school I applied to um, because we, it was either that or keep running the company. And so the timing worked out really well. My wife kind of transitioned the business while I started business school. And then we could move on to our next phase. Well, so let me unpack a couple things there because that, that's pretty incredible. Did you guys just quit, like just rip the bandaid off and quit your jobs? Or was there a transition period where one worked, one didn't, or you kind of worked part-time? How, how did that transition go? Because I know a lot of people struggle with that. I know that that's a big thing. They want to start a business or try to do some sort of side hustle, but they have a hard time managing that yeah. process. Yeah. So, so you mean when we left consulting and banking? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we did have a little bit of savings, so it wasn't, you know, going into debt. Um, but we, we knew that the first year we would be breaking even. I mean, we, we had an apartment that was, I remember the exact number. It was a 425 square foot studio. I mean, we, we lived as cheaply as we possibly could. Um, and we went from, you know, being taken out and the lifestyle of an investment banker and, you know, eating well with, as a consultant, of course you worked like crazy. You were always working, even in these client meetings where you were taken out to dinner, but the lifestyle was nice to, you know, what they call ramen profitable, where you're profitable, like you're, you're not losing money, but you're just barely squeaking by, right? All you can afford to eat is ramen. And uh, that was about right. <laughs> so year one was, you know, just ramen profitable. 
And then year two and three, we started actually making some money. Why? And I'm, I'm just curious if you can pry in deeper, more the idea, why solar energy at that time? Like, did you have like an in somehow to that industry? Or was that just like a random idea you had one day? Why, why was that the, the route to go? It was it was a connection from uh, from a family connection that was in the industry uh, into a brand new territory. And so I found this kind of virgin territory that no one had ever done this idea before here in, in uh, New York uh, at the time. Like it was there was just a bunch of disparate players. So I took what I I knew uh, existed in other parts of the country, but didn't exist here in New York along with what I had learned at BCG was this, with this idea of economies of scale that there are advantages to having a, a, a company that of a certain scale. Uh, you can start, uh, you can bring down prices while increasing margins at the same time. And so once, once we, you know, did the numbers, uh, we didn't know if the market would even exist. I mean, today it clearly exists. Solar is a multi-billion dollar industry, but at the time uh, that was the big unknown. Like would people actually buy it? Uh, and then we just ran some numbers, right? It was just a back of the envelope calculation of, okay, how many units would we need to sell? Uh, how many panels would we need to install? Uh, and then, you know, what kind of profit will we need in order to sustain ourselves for a year or two to, to validate that market? So we looked at it as an experiment that we'll try it for two years. Uh, we're not going to lose money. We're not going to make money. So the opportunity cost was what we could be doing with our time, right? Giving up our, our cushy salaries in investment banking and consulting. But that would be it. There, there wouldn't be any real, you know, we wouldn't go into debt uh, unless something really terrible happened. And so why not? Right. The, the only cost was the lost opportunity of our current jobs. And, and was there an exit strategy initially that you were thinking about? Like, hey, we would no. love to. It was just, let's just do it and figure it out along we the way. Were, we, you know, I, I'll be totally honest with you. At the time, we were so desperate to not be told what to do by our dumb bosses that we would do just about anything to work for ourselves. And And I don't know if I necessarily recommend that to everyone. Like, um, I don't think I realized, you know, the idea of entrepreneurship that, Hey, if you start a business, you're your own boss. That's not really true. That's kind of a lie <laughs> because your boss becomes your employees are your bosses. Your customers are your bosses. Um, so, so it's not that you have like total freedom. No one's your boss. You are your own boss. That's not exactly true. You just have a lot more bosses. What's different though, is that you have a lot more choice. And to me, that suited my temperament. It doesn't suit everybody's temperament. I, I don't subscribe to this ideal that, oh, everybody should be an entrepreneur. And I, not, not necessarily. You know, some people really like to be told what to do. Like, give me my job. Tell me exactly what I'm supposed to do. I do it. Leave me alone. Right? Like, that's totally fine. That just wasn't my temperament. Like, I, I, I really value freedom. Uh, if I succeed, great. If I fail, that's also fine because it's me. It was on my back. I did it. Uh, as opposed to if I succeed, my boss gets the credit. If I fail, I get the blame. That just never seemed like a great deal to me. And what was the, I'm just more curious on for, for Stanford Business School. Why did you decide? Because some people might have an ego like, oh, I started this business. We're now doing really well. Like, I don't need to go. Like, what was the reason for you to say, hey, you know, what? I really need to go here. This is this would be a good step for me. Yeah. So it, as, I, as I said, I, I only applied to Stanford. It was the only school I applied to. And I remember reading in the Wall Street Journal, uh, this was, let's see, circa 2005, early 2006. So Facebook had just started, and I think it was the first time I ever heard of the company. And I remember hearing about, about Facebook and also Google and you know these companies that were getting started in Silicon Valley. Uh, you got to remember still the hangover of the tech bust 
was still in in everyone's mind at that point, even 2005, 2006. Everybody remembers what happened during the dot-com bubble. But then, you know, there started to be these rumblings of these new companies. LinkedIn, I remember, was was written about quite a bit. And I, I remember having this revelation. You know, here I was in the solar energy business. Uh, I was keeping hundreds of thousands of dollars of inventory in a warehouse. And that was all on me, right? If I couldn't sell that inventory, I, I'd have to eat the cost. And I remember that these jokers out in Silicon Valley had no inventory. <laughs> they were selling bits. And I just remember thinking, oh my God, that is amazing, right? They are making money and providing this valuable service to people by selling bits. And I'm the sucker selling atoms. Like I got to figure out that business. <laughs> like I don't want to sell things made of atoms. I want to sell things made out of bits. And uh, that that was just so interesting and intriguing in a world I knew nothing about. Like I just didn't I didn't, I just didn't understand how you could do that. And uh, so I knew that the place to go would have to be Silicon Valley. And uh, Stanford is, is, you know, kind of the, the mecca of, of uh, tech entrepreneurship. And so I said, you know what, let me take a chance. I'll, I'll give it a shot. I'll apply. If I get in, great. If not, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. And uh, luckily, you know, I got in. So we had to relocate. <laughs> Well, and, and then you started Ad Nectar, which again, social media advertising, like at that time was, that was like, that was like it. That was like the beginning for, for the most yeah. part, right? I mean, yeah, it, it was can very you, early. I'm curious about why you started that. Again, is, was this that epiphany you had about, you know, kind of where tech, where things were going and you kind of saw it early on? What, what was the reason getting into that business? Yeah. So if there's one, if there's one consistent theme in my life, now that, now that you mention it, it's that I tend to be early to stuff, <laughs> which, you know, I was early in solar. I was early on social. So I graduated from Stanford in 2008. I started this company ad nectar with, with my classmates. And again, with my wife, we were co-founded it again, uh, another company together. This was 2007. We started ad nectar. So remember 2007, when you said apps, you weren't talking about iPhone apps. There was no such thing as iPhone apps because the Apple App Store didn't exist. That came out in 2008, and we started this company in 2007. Apps back then meant Facebook apps. And so what we were doing is, yeah, I don't know if you remember this, but back in the day of like Farmville, and uh, there were all these games where you could throw sheep at each other, and like all these silly games you could play on, on Facebook. And so we saw this opportunity to sell virtual goods. And virtual goods at the time, like we got laughed at by pretty much every investor <laughs> we tried to raise money for the company. Of course, today, virtual goods is a multi-billion dollar industry. People buying online virtual goods. I mean, it's, it's, it's a huge, huge, huge market. But at the time, uh, we were way too early in, in that field. And uh, as one of my professors, Andy Ratcliffe, once told me, he said, early is the same as wrong. <laughs> so I learned my lesson. <laughs> well, and so with obviously finding that, finding that company and, and some of the stuff you mentioned earlier about tech, you got into, you know, cause you do a lot of stuff, as you mentioned right at the beginning with like uh, product design, with how user experience, those type of things, right. Is that, that's kind of what, besides your speaking and, and book writing, which we'll get into in a second, that's kind of where you spend a lot of your time. Is that right? Yeah. So the, the silver lining of every one of these experiences that I've had, and, and I would say, so, so the solar business was a success. We got, we got on our feet financially. It gave us some more freedom and leeway. The, the second business, Ad Nectar, was not particularly successful. We, we raised a bunch of money. We raised millions of dollars from, from big-name VCs, um, but it was not a success. It was, you know, it was what, you, what you call an aqua hire. Um, you know, they basically bought the people and some of the IP, but it, you know, we, we, didn't, we didn't do particularly well. 
However, the upside of that experience was that I was very early uh, and had a front row seat to this field of behavioral design. That I was at Stanford with a lot of the people who went on to build these products. Uh, many of them were, you know, people I knew and, and were friends of mine. And uh, I, I could see that that some products and services online were getting mass adoption. Millions of people were using their products, and some of these people would continue to use the products and sustain engagement, while others would lose that engagement. And we call these businesses leaky buckets. These are the businesses that you know acquire people but then can't keep them. They, they, they're, they're leaky buckets. They leak out the users. And this was fascinating to me. I didn't understand why. Why was it that some companies could build, them, could build products that were so sticky and others you know, couldn't, couldn't keep people coming back? And so I had this high, very clear hypothesis that as the interface shrinks, so I could see what was going to happen here, that as we move from desktop to laptop, to mobile devices, to now wearable devices like the iPhone and all kinds of you know uh, smart watches, I'm, not the iPhone, the, the Apple Watch and smart devices that we're wearing on our bodies, uh, to now auditory interfaces like Amazon Alexa, where there is no visual interface, I, I realized back then even that, that habits would become very, very important because as the interface shrinks, there's less room to trigger people, to send them advertising and messages and notifications. There's just less physical real estate on a screen. And so that's where I, I decided, look, you know, habits are going to be really important in the future. I want the next thing I do, the next company I join, I want to make sure that they understand how to build habits or the next company I start, I want to know how to build a habit forming product. Let me go get the book on that subject. And I couldn't find the book on that subject. Nobody had written a book called how to build habit forming products. And so that's what I decided to do, that after two years of blogging about, about this, uh, researching it, talking to experts, academics, spending a lot of time at the Stanford Library, uh, I, I compiled enough of this research into a methodology that I call the Hooked Model, which is what my first book, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, is all about. And without giving away the whole book, right? We only have so much time, but like what, what's maybe one good takeaway that folks may, and, and again, a lot of entrepreneurs that may be listening to this that are developing products themselves, what are some things that you may share that might be the most impactful right out of the gate? Yeah, so it's really about building what's called the hooked model, the four steps of a trigger, action, reward, and investment. Now, not every business needs to be habit forming, but every business that needs to be habit forming needs a hook. So habits are one type of competitive advantage. You can have intellectual property, you can have brand, you can have economies of scale, but you need some kind of competitive advantage or you're always gonna be fighting on price and features, right? And we know what happens, your margins eventually get squeezed away until you know, you're just barely breaking even. So the idea here is that if you can have some kind of sustainable competitive advantage through habits, then you've gotta build a hook model. And so the hook model has these four basic steps of a trigger, an action, a reward and an investment, that's the, the backbone of the book. I, I, I can, it's hard to kind of explain it very, very quickly, but, but that's the four basic steps. So if there's one message I want folks to know out there who are trying to build a product that would benefit users, right? Remember what we're doing here. This isn't about addiction. This isn't about you know, getting people to, to, to do things they don't want to do. It's not about tricking them. You're, not only is that ethically wrong, it's bad business. You're going to go out of business if, you, if your business model gives people something they don't want. People aren't idiots. They stop using a product that hurts them, and they tell all their friends to stop using it. But if you're building the kind of product or service that would really help people if they would only engage with it, if they would only use it, 
Well, then it behooves you to understand these four basic steps of a trigger, an action, a reward, and an investment. That's how you build a hook model that keeps people coming back. Now, I also want to talk about this this new book because this is fascinating to me. I talked with, actually, it's so funny. I just had a call yesterday with actually a former guest, and we were talking about time management and trying to give some insight and stuff, some things that, that have helpful for me or whatever. So can you talk about the new book? It launches, uh, I guess, in a few weeks. It would be, yeah, or so. pretty soon. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So the new book is called The Indistractable, and it came out of... This question that I used to get uh, quite frequently when when I would speak about hooked, you know, people would say, "This is great, like terrific. We're going to build products that are going to help people exercise more and live healthier and save money, right? All these good habits that we can build with habit forming technology. That's terrific. But what about the bad habits, <laughs> right? What about the habits that we don't like in our life, where we find ourselves overusing a, a technology or a product? And so that's really the answer to to that question. And I saw it in my own life, right? I saw that in many ways I was becoming distracted. And, and I know as an insider how these products are built. Uh, I wrote the book on it. And so that's what Indistractable is all about. It's a book to help you control your attention and choose your life. It's for people who uh, want to be able to, uh, to, to make their own decisions without being influenced and manipulated by not only technology. I, mean, I do believe that technology is, is increasing the potential for distraction, but it's not technology's fault. This is not one of those books that says, get rid of your phone for 30 days, go on a digital detox. That, that stuff doesn't work. It doesn't work for the same re reason that when I was obese, fad diets don't work, right? When you go on a fad diet for 30 days, right? No junk food for 30 days. What happens on day 31? You know, you make up for lost time. You eat everything, right? That's what I used to do. And so this book isn't, isn't about that. It's, it's a pro-human, pro-tech guide to doing what you say you will do. And it's not just about technology, it's about all distractions. That's what I learned in writing this book is that distraction starts from within. We love to blame this tech boogeyman for doing it to us, but it turns out that distraction is a much deeper issue than just whatever tools we're using. What, what's one distraction that you notice in your life that you've, you've tried to alter and, and maybe get out or at least temper for the most part? Yeah. So, so, uh, you know, where do we start? <laughs> whether it's, uh, you know, the pinging and dinging of my phone, whether it's while I'm writing and I, I find myself uh, craving a distraction, like, uh, you know, just let me email something real quick, or let me check Google for something real quick. Uh, when, when you go to dinner and uh, you notice that half your friends are on their phone, as opposed to being fully present. I mean, that's, that's what we're up against here. It's, it's in our personal life. It's in our work life. It's everywhere, and it's you know what what I what I noticed in the self help and productivity community is that every book and every guru tells you what to do, but if we're honest with ourselves, we already know what to do, right? We we know that if you want to uh, have a healthy body, you have to exercise and eat right. If you want good relationships, you have to be fully present with people. If you want to do great work, you have to actually do the work, especially the hard stuff. So we know what to do. The question is, why don't we do it? Why do we constantly get distracted from doing things we know we should do? And so I've got another four-part model here. Uh, I like to think in four-part models. Uh, it took me a long time to develop these four steps, about five years to, to, you know, the hardest part of writing is is not what to write, it's what to leave out. And so that was that took me a long time to understand what to leave out of the of, of this book. And so I came, I, I settled on these four steps that that in order can help us become indistractable. And the first step is to, is to master the internal triggers, that we have to acknowledge this icky, sticky, uncomfortable truth 
that when we turn to a distraction, when we do something that we later regret, we are doing it because we want to escape an uncomfortable feeling. When we're lonely, we check Facebook. When we're uncertain, we Google. When we're bored, we check the news, stock prices, sports scores, all of these things, Reddit, uh, Pinterest. We do these things because we feel uncomfortable. And so the first step to mastering distraction and mastering our behavior is about understanding those internal triggers and learning to cope with them in a more healthful manner. So that's the first step. The second step is to make time for traction to make sure that we plan our days to live out our values, both in the, the work domain, certainly, but also in our family and community domain, as well as for ourselves. The third step is to hack back the external triggers. This is about making sure that we don't allow all of these pings, dings, and rings to constantly distract us. You know, there's you know, people complain to me about how distracting technology is, but look, there's nothing that Mark Zuckerberg can do if you turn off those goddamn notifications. Nobody says that you have to turn them all on all day. Two-thirds of people with a smartphone never change their notification settings. And that's just when we talk about our phones. We also have to deal with the distractions that come from other places. You know, what a huge distraction meetings are. I tell you how to fix that. Emails, I tell you how to reduce your time spent on email. Uh, distractions in the workplace, right? One of the most common causes of distraction at work is not our devices. It's a colleague in one of these open floor plan offices that says, hey, how's it going? You want to chat for a little bit when you're right in the middle of a big project? So every copy of my book, Indistractable, actually comes with a screen sign. You can pull out of the middle of the book. It's this piece of card stock that you rip out of the book, you fold into thirds, and you put it on your computer monitor, on your screen, and it says very politely, I'm indistractable at the moment. Please come back later. So that's one of the ways that we can hack back these external triggers. Then the final step is to prevent distraction with pacts. And this is all about using a pre-commitment device. Now, pre-commitment device is this very well-studied technique. By the way, nothing in my books is just, oh, this is, you know, Nier's pet, pet uh, technique and everybody should try it. No, no, no. Everything in the book is backed by peer-reviewed studies. I, I taught at Stanford for many years. I, I only respect peer-reviewed studies. It has to be something that's, that's been reviewed by academics. And so that's where I draw upon are all these peer-reviewed studies, not just you know, my, some you know, latest gimmick of the day, take a cold shower, whatever other rubbish is, it, it, people are trying to, to sell you on. So one of the techniques that's been studied for decades now is all about making a pre-commitment. So a pre-commitment is planning ahead to make sure you don't get distracted when you might be tempted in the future. And so the cool thing is we can actually use technology against itself. We can use all of these tools, most of them free, to block out distraction. So for example, quick story, I, I, uh, I found that, wait, can, can, I, can I get a little personal here? Can I be a little vulnerable? Is that all right? You can do whatever you want, man. Absolutely. All right. So let me, can I tell you about my sex life? <laughs> that's, that's fine. We, we open it up to many, many different things here on the- uh, I appreciate it. I wasn't sure what kind of show, if it's a family show, but hey, look, I've been married for 20 years. I'm just happy I have a sex life. Um, but so a few, a few years ago, my wife and I noticed that we were just not being as intimate with each other. We didn't have time to be intimate with each other like we used to. And I'll tell you exactly why. It was because we were you know, ca caressing our devices and fondling our iPhone as opposed to being together. And so here's what I did. I went to the hardware store and I bought myself this $5 outlet timer. And I plugged this outlet timer into my wall and you can set the outlet timer to turn anything you plug into it off at a certain time of day or night. So 10 p.m. in my household, the internet router shuts off. 
okay? That's an example of a pre-commitment, a pact that I made with myself to remind myself, oh, internet shuts off 10 o'clock, that's time for bed. So now could I, could I do something about it? Of course, I could you know, find a different way to get on the internet, I could unplug it, I could, that's not the point. The point is that I made a pact with myself and I added a bit of friction to make sure I didn't do something that would distract me. So I would turn off the technology and hopefully turn on my wife. Sorry, that was terrible. That's a, well, hope things are thriving. That's, <laughs> so that's good. Uh, to, you know, I, I, but I think you're right. I mean, I think turning off the device, you know, you, sure, you can actually shut it down or power it down, but there's other ways to at least temper yourself and kind of slow roll into that direction. So I appreciate you sharing that. That's pretty, um, that's, a, that's a nice little hack there, if you will. Yeah. Um, and, that's, and, that, and by the way, I want to, I want to make sure everybody listening knows the, the, the real idea behind the book is the strategy, not the tactics. There's lots and lots of tactics in the book, but remember tactics are what you do. Strategy is why you do it. So it's more important to understand why we get distracted so that you can come up with your own customized solutions, but you first have to understand the strategy. Here, this is awesome. Where, where can everyone find you online? Where's the best spot to connect? With sure. You? Uh, so my blog is nearandfar.com. Near is spelled like my first name, N-I-R. So nearandfar.com. And uh, my book is called, my first book is called Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. My next book is called Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. And if you visit indistractable.com, you will find all kinds of tools. Uh, if, if Whether you buy the book or not, doesn't matter. There's all kinds of tools there that you can get, an 80-page workbook, lots of great stuff there that didn't fit in the book that's, that will, will get you started on your path to becoming indistractable at indistractable.com. It's I N distract the word distract i n distract a b l e indistractable.com you know thank you so much for joining the podcast this was this was phenomenal i really appreciate you taking time out oh my pleasure thank you so much well i hope you guys enjoyed that interview and look forward to having you for the next one and if you are getting value out of this podcast please head over to itunes leave me a quick review let me know how i'm doing it's the only way i'm going to be able to make this podcast better each and every episode and go connect with me online at Brian Andreco on Instagram or Twitter, or head over to my website, BrianAndreco.com, where I house the podcasts, you know, my CrossFit journey, a ton of blog articles. I even have a now page to kind of keep people up to speed on the last couple months. Um, at worst, it gives my mom peace of mind to keep tabs on me and know that I'm doing okay. So I hope you guys continue to do great. Um, I look forward to having you on another episode and keeping connected online. Take care, have a phenomenal week, and we'll talk to you soon.